Welcome to the SOSV Climate Tech Summit podcast series. I'm the AI voice of Ben Joff, a partner at SOSV and co-curator of the summit. In this episode, three founders of startups building small nuclear reactors discuss the development of advanced nuclear technologies and their potential in the energy landscape. They highlight the shift in business models, the need for private investment, and the importance of addressing safety concerns. The speakers express optimism about the future of nuclear energy and emphasize the importance of collaboration in achieving clean and sustainable energy systems. This conversation is moderated by Shannon Bragg-Sitton, director of the Integrated Energy and AMP Storage Systems Idaho National Laboratory. Thank you so much and welcome all to this session that will focus on curbing emissions with small nuclear systems that use fission energy technologies. My name is Shannon Bragg-Sitton and I'm the director of the Integrated Energy and Storage Systems Division at Idaho National Laboratory, the U.S. lead laboratory for nuclear energy. We are seeing governments and technology developers around the world now considering nuclear energy as a contributor in reaching net zero goals. The recent documentary by Oliver Stone, Nuclear Now, also tries to dispel the myths and misconceptions around nuclear energy. The first nuclear reactor was built in 1942, more than 80 years ago, and there are now close to 500 reactors operating worldwide. Most new reactors are being built in China, India, and Russia, but the U.S. also recently started a new unit in the state of Georgia. Historically, these nuclear plants have been large, expensive, centralized projects producing a gigawatt or more of electricity. But today, nuclear energy is seeing a revival with the development of smaller, lower cost, and more distributed solutions. Small modular reactors, or SMRs, are well-suited to more remote regions, offshore deployments, hydrogen production, focused industrial applications that may require heat or steam, or as an ideal complement to smaller scale renewable installations. And today we see over 70 companies developing advanced nuclear technologies around the world, many of which are just a few megawatts to a few hundred megawatts per unit. I'm joined by the founders and CEOs of three of these advanced nuclear fission companies, and I'm looking forward to the conversation we'll have with them. First, let's go to Brett Kugelmoss. Brett is the CEO and founder of Last Energy, which is based in Washington, D.C. Last Energy is developing a small pressurized water reactor, essentially a smaller version of the current fleet reactors we have operating. These are designed to cost about 100 million U.S. dollars per unit, and they are very compact, fitting within an American football field. Brett, you've come to the nuclear industry from a different starting point than most. In fact, I fondly recall meeting you several years ago as you interviewed me for one of your first installments of the very popular Titans of Nuclear podcast. Can you tell us more about why you founded Last Energy and how you are approaching this challenge of getting advanced nuclear energy into the marketplace? Yes, uh, great to be here. Thank you so much um, for that great intro as well. It, yeah, my story is a little bit different than most entrepreneurs in the nuclear sector. I didn't come from the nuclear industry. As a matter of fact, I came from Silicon Valley and formerly developing other technology companies. But realizing that climate change required nuclear brought me here. I used the Titans of Nuclear podcast as a way to explore and really try to hone in on what was the right problem to solve in the sector. And after interviewing for almost two years, over 1,500 people, including yourself and many, many others, I came to the conclusion that the 
challenge that was necessary in order to drastically reduce the cost of deploying new nuclear had nothing to do with the reactor core, but rather the business model, the manufacturing model, the regulatory model. And so at Last Energy, we build a 20 megawatt micro PWR, pressurized water reactor, that is meant to be mass manufactured. But most importantly, we don't touch the core. No material science changes, no changes to the fuel, no changes to the process. It's just a shrunken down PWR, just like Belgium's first reactor or the NS Savannah, meant to be mass manufactured. And we've had incredible commercial success this last year, selling over 50 such power plants throughout Europe. Thank you, Brett. That that really is fascinating. I, I like the idea of turning the industry on its head, thinking about things differently in order to overcome this challenge of getting these technologies to market. Uh, so next, let's turn to Nikal Bo, who is the chairman and CEO of Core Power based in the United Kingdom. I understand Core Power is co-developing molten salt reactors that could be used in electric cargo ships and to support floating industrial facilities. This design uh, only requires refueling after operating two or three decades, which is very similar to nuclear-powered submarines. These last a very long time. Mikhail, I understand that you've been working with TerraPower, which is backed by Bill Gates, for reactor design, and that you're also working toward mass manufacturing, as Brett has just described. How did you come to nuclear and to the current technology solution you're working on? Well, thanks, Shannon. Um, pleased to be here with you today, and thanks for the introduction. Uh, as you indicate, you know, I come from the maritime industry. I worked for 30 years in ocean transportation, and that's the market that we think um, has, a, has a real need for these new technologies. It's a $7 trillion industry, which transports close to 90% of global trade or exported go goods. And as a result, it's the sort of backbone of global trade. Uh, we consume 350 million tons of fossil fuels every year. It's about 4 billion megawatt hours of energy, and we emit over a billion tons of CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, the problem is we've been mandated to go to zero emissions by 2050, and that simply can't be done. Alternative fuels produced, you know, um, in the conventional way, ammonia, methanol, which is being produced today from natural gas. If we were to do that, we would uh, increase the share of global transportation's emissions from uh, by a factor of about five times, from 3% to 15%, and that simply isn't the solution. So we're coming at this from the point of view that here is an industry that's extremely hard to abate and it needs nuclear power, but it needs a different and new way of doing it. There is a reason we don't have this today. So I started Core Power back in 2018 to build this new technology based on the Molten Salt Tractor. We're now building at INL, where you work, Shannon, and also help to help create you know, a framework for how this is regulated and to build a brand new market for new nuclear and maritime. It, you know, it's a big, big challenge and we have to be brave and we have to think big to solve it. Absolutely, Mikhail. And I look forward to seeing that first unit operating here at INL and understand how that's operating. I think that you're really tackling a global challenge of the hard to abate sectors with maritime transportation and I, I hope that this technology is successful in the near term to abate those emissions. Uh, finally, I'll turn to Stefano Buono, CEO of Nucleo, based in the UK as well as Italy. Nucleo is developing yet another type of reactor, a lead-cooled fast-spectrum nuclear reactor that will operate using nuclear fuels that are derived from depleted uranium and plutonium from stockpiles of nuclear waste. 
Stefano is a physicist that founded a nuclear medicine company initially, and that was later acquired for billions. Stefano, how and why did you transition from medicine to the energy generation sector? Well, actually, I uh, was the first transition that was strange because I started as a nuclear physicist and I was working for many years on this kind of technology. So from the 90s, uh, the idea uh, and the motivation at that time was to create a, a nuclear system that was safer. So we had just uh, had uh, the accident of Chernobyl and we were looking for the concept of passive safety. Uh, in that search for a safe reactor, we, we found uh, lead, the idea of using lead as a coolant uh, rather than sodium. And this, as you mentioned, would open the possibility of multi-recycling uh, the nuclear waste. Uh, you know that any reactor today is using essentially 0.5% or maximum 1% of the power that is in the uranium that is extracted. Uh, with a multi-recycling, in principle, you can use 100% of it. Uh, so you have now a lot of uh, um, uh, waste uh, that has been generated and uranium extracted that can be used as fuel. And this will, could, could fuel uh, for hundreds of years our reactor. So there is a, a mine of extracted uranium that we could use using this multi-recycling. So on top of the objective of having a, sa a safer reactor, uh, so a reactor that can implement passive safety system, and lead is a key uh, element to reach this uh, objective uh, in an economic way, uh, we have also added this mission to burn the uh, the plutonium that is uh, in excess uh, today in Europe. There is, there is free plutonium in France and uh, and UK that need to be disposed. Uh, so we are joining these two missions, and we do it, of course, with a, a small size because uh, we have to be a small and modular like uh, everyone else here in the in in this meeting. Thank you, Stefano. I think you've highlighted some really important aspects of the revival of nuclear energy technologies, focusing on continued advances in passive safety and closing the nuclear fuel cycle. In fact, looking across these three technologies that are being developed, I think we have a really uh, beautiful set of solutions where we can utilize fuel from one technology to drive another technology and move toward a very uh, clean, sustainable energy system. So now that we've heard a little bit more about each of your companies and what you're developing, ranging from small-scale water-cooled reactors to molten salt-cooled and lead-cooled fast reactors, I'd like to dive in a little bit more about how you see these novel nuclear fission systems truly fitting into that broader energy landscape in the coming decades. How is this round of technology development different from its predecessors? Brett, let's start with you and then, and then move through our panelists. So I think one of the things that we've really tried to hone in on is a difference in business model. And so we act almost as a utility where we will cut out the middleman and we'll sell energy as a service to direct off takers. And then just like one would in the industrial gases sector, we'll find a plot of land next to those facilities, develop our own project, connect a private cable, and be able to deliver power directly to our customer. And so that's one of the ways that you know, we think that 
we're able to unlock a whole new set of opportunities and a whole new set of stakeholders and cut through a lot of the bureaucracy by innovating on the business model as well as the technology. Fantastic. Mika? Well, I think, Shannon, we're finally getting to the point where if we're going to move off fossil fuels, which is really what the big discourse is in the world today, we don't really have a choice. Nuclear is the only reliable solution we have, and it's not just about electricity to the grid. It's about heavy industry, as Brett's just said. It's about transport. It's those really hard-to-abate sectors of the economy, as well as you know poorer countries that have to leapfrog the fossil fuel revolution to get the energy that they need. And that means, in my opinion, new ways of doing nuclear. It doesn't have to be different technologies, but different business models, different deployment models, different way of doing these things so that we can bring things to market faster, we can do it cheaper, which means smaller, simpler, cheaper with a shift, I think, as Stefano has pointed out, from active safety. Not so much about more safety, it's about shift from active safety to passive safety because <laughs> at the end of the day, it's about the physics of the machine, not the skills of the people that we're going to have to rely on here. Human error is the greatest cause of most accidents and with the one that we're looking at, the molten salt reactor, that's no longer much of an issue. So I think there are many different things that come into this to enable us to bring uh, new nuclear up close and personal, if you like. Absolutely. Stefano, what would you like to add on this? Maybe I could add uh, the fact that uh, we are transitioning uh, um, very much in the business model, but there is also a transition from a governmental approach, especially in Europe, into a private approach. So we are uh, we, have, we have to try to let uh, private money to flow into the system, not governmental money. Private money is fast. Uh, we need to return on investment that is uh, faster. Uh, so the, our recipe is to control the cost of uh, nuclear. So our aim is to have uh, four euros per, uh, per watt installed, uh, which is in the low side, of course, of the cost of a nuclear reactor, but also to, to do uh, energy man, uh, production system faster. So uh, today in Europe, unfortunately, we have bad records of having uh, money, a lot of money deployed for a very long time, more than 10 years, up to more than 10 years. So we have to reduce the building and operate, um, this investment phase to less than three years. So even if we produce, a, let's say, medium-sized modular reactor, because we want to produce 200 megawatt electric, we still uh, need to do it in three years. So the model is changing also because of the deployment of the capital not only because of the cost. I love hearing this, this shift in thinking on business models, lower cost technologies, faster uh, in, in getting systems to market, and of course, mass manufacturing, really helping us to shift to an economies of quantity approach versus economies of scale that we have seen historically. And one thing I'm really curious about, as you're starting to look at these different market segments, I'd like to understand from your perspective how those markets and the local communities around those markets are really beginning to perceive nuclear energy as an option to their future energy needs and how that may or may not be uh, affecting your development speed and financing and how uh, you are, are gaining that market support. Uh, let's start with Mikhail this time. Thanks, Shannon. Yeah, well, Core Power is... Um got backing from close to 100 separate investors now, mostly from industrial, strategic, transport investors, large corporations that are looking to secure this technology into their value chain in the future, you know, becoming customers, if you like. And one of the things that I think we 
are able to demonstrate with setting down the criteria for how new nuclear in maritime would work, specifically from core power's perspective, is that you know we've got to be able to provide a benefit to everyone. It's not just the you know the the the, the company that has bought and deployed the the energy system around the reactor and getting the electricity or the work from that is also those communities around it so having a having a, a a new form of nuclear that we can bring close to population centers into waterways and into ports docking at uh, you know berths in ports etc and providing electricity in those really hard to abate sectors without the liability risk and without the environmental risk around it that's perceived by population I, I think I think we're starting to rewrite the contract with the public. And we're seeing this from big ports. We're seeing this from industry. We're seeing mm-hmm. this from port communities that are really wondering, what are we going to do? How are we going to you know, uh, clean up our environment? How are we going to decarbonize these massive you know, installations that we, we live nearby and work in? And here comes a technology that's small. It's friendly. It's clean. It doesn't have the sort of risk profile that's perceived of a, a, you know, more conventional technologies. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I think we can rewrite that contract. It hasn't happened yet, but it's a gradual shift from sort of, you know, lightly skeptical to enthusiastic. And I think, as I said before, bringing nuclear more up close and personal creates that that bridge between confidence and um, and familiarity. And that's what we need. You know, a little knowledge goes a long way with nuclear, and we all know it. Uh, yes, I can testify probably the enthusiasm around nuclear by the investor community. Uh, today, I raised already 400 million. I am in the process of raising uh, 1 billion, which is rather a successful process. So it's, uh, it's really a lot of money. But I'm raising this money from a large number of people. Of course, there are uh, funds, uh, or some banks, some um, institutions, but uh, there is uh, overall the people. Uh, family office and people who wants to put the money. And uh, um, so I have been asked to invest every day. And I think the motivation of this investor is not yet a financial um, objective, but it's really the one of uh, letting a project in nuclear fly in uh, in Europe, because most of my investors come from Europe. So there is really a shift in uh, already in the mind of people in which um, nuclear can contribute to, uh, you know, to our progress, not only for the decarbonization, but in Europe also for energy independence. That has become an issue for Europe because of the war uh, with Russia uh, and our dependence historical from, um, from gas, uh, of course, from Russia. I think you're right that that confluence of national security and energy security and energy independence are really driving some new discussions around energy options. Uh, Brett, what would you like to add? I mean, I agree with everything that they've said. There has been a noticeable shift, but I do want to emphasize that that shift is not necessary and should not be used as like a foundation for permission to go build. Certain societies have always loved nuclear and have a long-standing tradition of supporting it and, and, and still do support it. So whether we had half or even two-thirds of the countries against it, that's no excuse not to build where people love it. And that's always been our approach. Go to the lowest hanging fruit. Like It's not our job right now to convince everyone to love nuclear. Our job is to prove that we can build it cost effectively and then use the incredible success generated from that to open it up to new markets and change people's perception after we have a track record of success. 
I'd like to underscore something you just said, Brett. It's it's not about making everyone love a single technology, and that goes uh, for any of the technologies. We have a, a limited set of clean energy technologies in our toolbox, and the right mix is different in each regional uh, deployment location and for each of the markets. And so understanding what the option space is and proving that nuclear energy can be affordable and it can be built in a timely fashion is key to showing that it is truly a part of our clean energy toolbox and that we need to uh, embrace that where it makes sense. So fully agree with that. Uh, One thing I find interesting is as we look around the field of these advanced nuclear technology developers, I mentioned more than 70 companies starting up and developing advanced technologies some of those are coming out of you know, what I might consider a giant in the field, companies that have been around decades, uh, thousands of employees. And then we have companies like your own, which are much smaller, bringing fresh, new thinking, new approaches. Love to hear uh, your thoughts on how that has affected your progress. Is it a challenge going against these giants or is it perhaps a fresh look and new opportunity? Well, I have the example of uh, medicine because you mentioned that I had a successful. Uh, um, I think um, in um, the, there is no conflict between the biotech and the big pharma. Uh, they are doing different jobs. And uh, there is an opportunity for small companies to act faster and take a decision and uh, use uh, the, the, the private money for uh, a purpose that is uh, one project. So there is a dynamic that is happening, which is similar to the one of biotech into, into medicine. There is a role of a small company to accelerate the, the innovation. And I think we are fulfilling this role. Can I add to that, Stefano? I think that's, that's a very good point you're making. And, you know, to answer Shannon's question, um, I think it's it's actually the other way around. It's very encouraging to see incumbent technology developers, large corporations coming in and, and sort of being in this field rather than just doing what they've always done before. And for us, uh, you know, younger companies, you know, in that scale-up phase that we're in, like Core Power, it's, it's, it's very encouraging then to see the discussions and debates that we have with those companies, but also see those, I mean, I have to say, giant corporations that are coming in and investing in us and what we're doing. I mean, some of our investors are, you know, <laughs> hundreds of times bigger than I think we'll ever become. Um, and they do it for a reason, not just because they think they can make a little bit of money out of something which is now becoming popular, but because they have a real, genuine future customer need for this, right? And their customers themselves, etc. that part of that energy transition transition that does something new and different. Um, I I think it's extremely encouraging to see the largest corporations developing this technology and other large corporations, even larger corporations, investing in the the, the young startup and scale-up companies that are coming through here. Just a sort of word of warning for everyone who's listening to this, of course, you know, you say there are 70 companies developing technology. There is, you know, going to be a much thinner field as we move forward, as 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 you probably imagine. So the, the, the choice is in fact rather limited. So uh, I, I agree with a lot of what I've heard and it is the right perspective to have that a rising tide floats all boats, especially especially in this industry. That being said, we shouldn't be naive. The incumbents include, you know, both in nuclear but also in the broader energy space, they're sharks and you can't you can't like assume that they're going to want to be there to, to help you out. 
And so how we've approached this is by trying to carve out a niche where we are not directly competitors against them. Because if we tried to compete head on with the incumbents, it does not matter how good your technology is, you will lose. So we just go for customers that because of their size or location, they can't provide for and try to stay away from that direct competition. Yeah, I wanted to add, uh, this is also a little bit uh, our approach. The fact of uh, having the possibility to burn the nuclear waste is helping us in the relationship with the big uh, companies. In France, uh, we are becoming a partner of EDF because we have uh, 40 tons of uh, the old fuel super phoenix that uh, we can burn because we can uh, maybe uh, you know uh, reduce their uh, storage of uh, of uh, fuel use fuel etc etc so there is also um, let's say complementarity that is possible with the big uh, uh, companies Absolutely. And, and that's why I mentioned we've got a diverse set of technologies represented here. Uh, they can be complementary to large scale systems and they can be complementary to renewables and be a very good backbone to a clean energy grid and, and provide the reliability and resilience as well as that sustainability as we begin to close that fuel cycle as your technology does, Stefano. Uh, one thing I'd like to, to understand, and as I go to various audiences uh, talking about advanced nuclear technologies, a leading question that I get is, when will these really be available? When can I order one? There, there are many companies that are frankly chomping at the bit for these technologies to be available, and there's a lot of promises out there around uh, the technologies. Some of these companies are merely paper reactors right now. Some are moving well through hardware demonstrations. So I'd like to understand uh, when you believe we can realistically see your technologies and related technologies deployed, where are you in the regulatory and licensing process? And when do you think that first operational facility will be uh, ready to go? I can start if you like. Um, I think it's very important for everyone to recognize that nuclear is difficult, not because it's um, it has to be, but it has become difficult and we have to recognize that. And it takes time. It's very important that we do things right rather than do things quickly, as you probably noticed with you know just a few accidents and mishaps in the past that creates you know a, a, an issue around this. So we've got to we've got to do this right, which means that you have to go through many hoops in order to get you know, through the various stages of development. I think the way we see this with a sort of public-private um, initiative that we were in together with the U.S. Department of Energy and so U.S. government support for this, which sort of lends a little bit of um, additional weight to the licensing and regulatory side, at least domestically in the United States as well, we, we see that there is a process through several stages and the final sort of first commercial prototype, the demonstration prototype is like to be there sometime between 2032 and 2035. But that doesn't mean that we're starting now and we sort of think that we can get it all done in nine or 10 years. We started in 2013. So that's effectively a two-decade development program to get all of that incredibly hard to find data up onto the surface and to get this licensed, regulated, deployed, built at scale in the right kind of environment. And then you can take it from there. Then you can say, right, okay, we got one now, we'll build a second and a third, etc. And we, in the marine environment, obviously used to shipyard manufacturing. So it's not just about manufacturing as, as, as Brett and Stefano are, 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 are saying and as I'm saying as well, sort of manufacturing reactors, but it's, it's the entire 
power plant, if you like. A floating nuclear power plant is built from scratch in a modular fashion in the shipyard and then can be moved to where it's needed, moved back to where it came from when you've finished with it. So you, you change, if you like, the entire ecosystem around it. So once we've got the first one, two, maybe five built as serially prototyped machines, I think that can be scaled in a very effective way. Excellent. I saw Stefano uh, pop in here. Yes, um, uh, we have initiated um, uh, the interaction with the French regulatory authorities uh, because we are uh, uh, we want to build our first uh, uh, manufacturing facility for the fuel and our first reactor in France. The aim is 2030. is a long time. Uh, but uh, we are uh, and we have a new technology. The technology exists, but we have to implement a new design. So we, we need this time in Europe. Thank you. And Brett? So since we're not inventing anything new, our novelties in the systems integration and manufacturability of our plant, we intend to have our first plant ready to go live in 2025. Wow. And that's from a manufacturing and supply chain perspective in which we already lined up the entire supply chain with contracts and have already started manufacturing in Houston, Texas. That being said, licensing can take longer. And so while we hope that we can get a license within the next two years, we're realistic and understand that it might take three or four. But our power plant will be ready to go before the end of 2025. That is excellent news, Brett. And I think that's excellent news to many of those industrial companies that are looking to nuclear energy to help them move toward uh, decarbonization. And I think it's important for the audience to understand that these technologies that are in development, while highly varied, are essentially technologies that have been researched for decades. There's a lot of data that can be pulled from historical work, a lot of lessons learned from previous research and development approaches. So I think now it's all coming to fruition and we have a lot to uh, bring to the field now in our energy system solutions. And I know we are down to the, the end of the wire on our time. This has been a fascinating discussion hearing about these technologies. And I'd like to give you each just a, a quick moment here at the end to share any final thoughts and a quick lightning round. I'll, I'll start with Brett. The message I always love to leave on, which is always a little bit controversial, is stop talking about safety. You can design a safe reactor, that's fine. The more you talk about it, the more you scare people. Stop talking about safety. That's not the first time I've heard uh, that uh, message, and I think you're absolutely correct. We have a very safe uh, technology that we are developing. Nicole, your thoughts? That moving transport of global trade away from fossil fuels presents an unsurmountable challenge of scale, and only nuclear can actually do that. So we need to have a new nuclear solution, and that's what we're building at Core Power. Fantastic. And Stefano? <laughs> yes, I, um, I would like not to hear that there is competition among the technologies. I think that the, the group of uh, companies that is uh, innovating today, they, have, uh, they, you know, they can all be Many can be present on the market at the same time because our market needs a lot of growth in the electricity production. Europe is forecasted to, to, to need to grow three times the electricity production by 2050. So that's, uh, that's the message. Let's collaborate, especially in the, in, the, um, uh, really in uh, explaining to the people that uh, there is no danger in the nuclear and is the, the technology of the future. Thank you all so much for sharing your 
thoughts, your technologies. And I love ending on that note of collaboration. We have a grand challenge ahead of us globally to get to net zero emissions across all of our energy use sectors. And we can't get there alone. I'm excited to have colleagues and collaborators uh, such as yourselves out in the field working toward this common goal of net zero energy that is reliable, resilient, and sustainable. Thank you so much for the time today. I encourage our audience to reach out to uh, those of us here on this panel, as well as others in the field, if you'd like to learn more. Thank you. Thank you.